Now that's a hard act to follow. It's a real joy for Kathleen and me to be here with you this morning and to see so many faces that are becoming more and more familiar. And it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. I've been thinking for the last several, maybe months, about my role as a grandfather. And uh, I've been praying that God would make me a good grandfather. And uh, we just got back from Montana last night. We had been to the wedding of my granddaughter. And uh, here a new family is being formed. And it fits in somewhat with what I have to say today. I'd like to speak on the marks of a genuinely Christian family. So I trust that God will use this in all of our lives and... Uh, I pray for myself also with regard to my role as a father, as a husband, as a grandfather. We'll be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 25. Uh, we'll, I'm, I'm not going to read it now. We'll refer to it from time to time as we go over the text. But I'd like to introduce what I have to say with what Mother Teresa, when she received her Nobel Prize, was asked how, what can we do to promote world peace? And she said, go home and love your family. And I thought that was very, very pertinent and very wise. And the question is, is yours, is mine a genuinely Christian family? Now, I don't mean, is it a place where you have prayer before your meals, where most of you do, I don't mean, is it a place where you have a motto on the wall, Christ is the head of this home? I don't even mean, is it a place where you go to church on Sunday? And these things are all good. But I mean somewhat more. And I agree with the preacher, and I think it was Howard Hendricks, who said that in order to get the job done, our ministry, our lives and our homes, they must be characterized by at least four things. And these are the four things that he mentioned. First, it must be valid or authentic. It must be biblical, it must be gracious, and it must be relevant. And what he meant by authentic was that our lives cannot be phony or unreal. By biblical, he meant what we say will not be based on the opinions of men, or on pop psychology. And by gracious, he meant we will not be needlessly offensive or abrasive or condemning, but rather positive. And lastly, by relevant, what he meant was we must do meaningful things in the society in which we live. Now, we have a real challenge when we look to the future. I'm preparing a message now on pornography, which is a scourge and a curse even in the church. We have a real challenge. Some have said that they didn't know of a generation that had a greater challenge than this present one. This means that we need to be authentic, we need to be biblical, we need to be gracious, and we need to be relevant more than we ever have. 
And we've all been reminded of the challenge of the future through such books as John Naisbitt's Megatrends and Elvin Toffler's Future Shock and more recently Toffler's book entitled The Third Wave. In The Third Wave, written in the 80s actually, he talks about our world in the 90s and in the year 2000 and beyond. And he says a powerful tide is surging over much of our world today, creating a new and often bizarre environment in which to work, in which to play, in which to marry, in which to raise children or to retire. Now, if we define the family as a working husband, a housekeeping wife, and two children, that's what I grew up in, and we were to ask how many Americans actually live in this kind of family, you might be shocked to know that about 7% of the United States has that kind of family. We don't fit the mold of that type of family any longer. And we are witnessing a population explosion of solos, S-O-L-O. That is, people who live outside a family altogether. And today, one-fifth of all households in the United States consist of a person living solo. And Mark Porter of Valley Bible Church told me some time ago that about 50% of the people in the Tri-Valley are singles. That is, they are not married. And the world, our children and our grandchildren, are going to move into this kind of a world. Are moving, and we're there. We're here now. And I'd like to explain the waves per Toffler and then move into our text. The first wave was the agricultural wave a while ago. This is the wave of yesterday, the wave of the little house on the prairie, this was the wave of the simpler lifestyle, the struggling pioneer. Generations lived together or near each other, the extended family. That's the first wave. The second wave can be described by the word industrialization. This was the move from the farm to the city. And we no longer did our own things, but they're done by machinery the mass production, the assembly line. And during this period of mobility, for, that is from the farm to the city, we see a moving away from the extended family to what is called the nuclear family, that is husband, wife, and children. And the third wave of technology is not really defined per Toffler. It's the computer age, you know about that. It's an age in which so many things are changing. And it's during this period that we see a moving away now from the nuclear family. First was the extended family, then the nuclear family, and now solos. And so should we change also the biblical principles? Should we accommodate our message to this third wave of Tofflers? And of course we all say no a thousand times. No, actually, never, as far as I'm concerned. And the challenge that we face then today 
is how do we communicate the message of the gospel so that our message is authentic, biblical, gracious, and relevant. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is counsel given to people who are moving into their third wave, just as we have moved into our third wave. And maybe you've never thought of it this way, but I'd like for you to think of the history of Israel for just a few moments. The first wave, slavery in Egypt. These people who moved from Egypt to Canaan moved out of a slavery lifestyle that they had known for generations, about 400 years actually. This was a simple family, a simple lifestyle. Make bricks all day, an exhaustion, go home, sleep all night, get up in the morning, make bricks again, and the night back home again. Simple, tough lifestyle. And then came an 80-year-old man, Moses, who after a burning bush experience leads an exodus out of Egypt, and we have the second wave. And the second wave is the wilderness wanderings. They no longer lived in the culture of Egypt. They couldn't operate as in the days of slavery, but they still weren't in Canaan. They came right up to the border of Canaan, and just before they moved into the so-called promised land, the land that flowed with milk and honey, Moses says, stop. Wait. Before you go in, I have something that I want you to hear again. I want to remind you one more time of the law of God, and so we have the book of Deuteronomy. Deutero means a second time. Namus means the law. And so the book of Deuteronomy is a reiteration of the law of God. And, and these people that are moving into this new place, going to move into the new place, the promised land, need to hear the word of God again. Freshly delivered. And so the book of Deuteronomy, it seems to be like a series of new sermons by Moses where he explains the law of God one more time. Now the lifestyle of Canaan has a very great similarity to our lifestyle of today. And so Moses speaks these very relevant words to these people on the move. And I want to go to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 6 to see the value of the second look. So turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. If you like to underline verses, this is a verse, believe me, to underline. Verse 24, so the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good. Now get this and for our survival as it is today. The Lord commands these people on the move, the Israelites, to obey God, to fear God for survival reasons. So what does this say to us? God has not given these instructions to us to make us feel miserable. 
but for our good. And not because it's nice truth to learn and memorize for Sunday school. This is survival information. The NIV puts it, to be kept alive. The King James Version says that he might preserve us alive. In other words, we cannot make it, we cannot survive without this truth. And if you plan to survive the rest of this decade, we must have the truth of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And there are at least four essentials that must occur in a family for us to survive in this decade. And we need to go beyond normal Christianity and seek to have a fresh touch with God. We need to transplant mere religiosity with a real vital Christianity. And so I'd like to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 together, and we're going to do this uh, a little bit quickly because of time constraints, but uh, let, let's just go over as much as we can. Now, when you read Deuteronomy 6, or the book itself in total, I, I'd like for you not to think of Canaan, but think of our world today and the future of our children today. And there are several things that Israel needed to know, and they are basics that all of us here, I believe, need to know. Verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. Why? That you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his commandments and his com commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Why teach the things in verse 1? So that you, and I want you to notice now who the you is. The you is so that your children and your grandchildren, three generations, might fear God, keep his decrees and commandments so that you might have a long life. This is the New Testament equivalent of the abundant life or life to the full. Even on the physical level, people who disobey God's commandments don't really live very long. Now verse three, and I want you to notice this verse carefully. O oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. Why? That it might be well with you. That it might be well with you. Be careful to obey. Why? So that it might go well with you. You are about to enter into a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of abundance. It's a land of affluence, to use today's terms. It's a land with plenty of water. It's a land with plenty of food. And there would be fine cities and lovely homes and, and nice appointments uh, to those homes. But the land is spiritually depraved. And I want you to get this. Most of the pornography of our times 
we're told by sociologists who have done their biblical homework that it can be traced back to the Canaanite lifestyle. That's the pornography we have today can be traced back to the Canaanite lifestyle. Knowing that the land would be a land of milk and honey physically, Moses says, I want to warn you about the social lifestyle you're going to be encountering. And I want you to prepare for it. Again, why? The text says, be careful to obey so that it might be well with you. Now, verses 4 and 5. Read what is essential in this passage. And what is essential? Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The first great essential is a love for God that permeates the parent. This is the first of the essentials we must understand in order to have an authentic home, a genuinely Christian home. You will observe in verse 5 that we are told to love the Lord your God. And the you of verse 5, you shall love, goes back to father, mother, grandparents. And you are to love with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. And when we have this kind of repetition, this word all, you know that there is an emphasis on that term. When God says all, 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 it deserves an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. A love for God must permeate the parent. And if we want an authentic home, a genuinely Christian home, we have to start with the parent. You can't start with the child. It's impossible for me to transfer to my child a principle that I don't embrace. I cannot transfer honesty if I am dishonest. I cannot transfer clean lips if my mouth is full of profanity. I cannot transfer care and compassion if I walk over people. So essential number one, a love that permeates is part of my internal fabric. And that'll control everything I do and everything I say. The second essential, we must consciously and consistently transfer God's truth to the young. We need to do that very, very much. Remember that children do not automatically capture our zeal for Christ. Actually, it's, it's to the contrary. What is automatic is that children easily get turned off. And if there is going to be a capturing of the zeal, then there needs to be a process described here of authentic training. And I want you to notice how it happens. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your son. 
and you shall talk to them when you sit in your house, in your family room, you know, or wherever. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now the Hebrew has a term for preaching and another term for lecturing. And neither term is used here. But there is a term for just talking. And guess what? That's the term that's used here. You shall teach them. You shall talk. Just talking. No formal lecture. No catechism. Just talking just like you would talk about anything else in your home. You may not hold a family council. You may not hold classes. Just talk about living stuff. I learned something from my father when I was a sophomore in college. He came home from work early one day, and I wondered why. Well, he had been fired from his job. You know why? Because he was sharing the gospel with his fellow workers. And even though he did his job, he was fired. And my dad says, ah, don't worry about it, I'll get a better job. And he did. But I learned something. I, I learned uh, living stuff, employment, talking about Jesus, working, doing an honest day's job. And uh, even then, sometimes uh, your boss doesn't like it. And you get fired. But I learned something. Home is the place where life makes up its mind. And the child is free to talk and question, and the parent is free to talk and answer, and God fits comfortably into the conversation, and that's authentic, folks. Note where he talks about life in verse 7. It's while sitting at home. Walking on the road, lying down, getting up, driving to our vacation getaway. Naturally, comfortably, these are the great teachable moments of life. You know, I, I've missed, I have to say, some of the teachable moments with my children. At other times, I've taken them, and my kids still talk about this, I've taken them, I used to take them to, uh, to work with me. And I would, uh, well, I remember this particularly. I was taking one of my children to uh, one of our places in Modesto. And we were driving along the road, and I saw a great big crowd of sheep over there just off the road. And so I pulled over, stopped the car, and I told them the story about the 99 and the one lost sheep. They'd never forgotten it. Thank God when we take advantage of those teachable moments. And they do come. And may God help us to realize when that moment is and take it. So essential number two, passing on the baton to our children in an authentic way. Not beating them over the head, but teaching them. 
Now the third essential, in verses 10 to 12, and I want to emphasize verse 12, but let's read verses 10, 11, and 12, just for context. Then it shall come about when our Lord, our, your God, brings you, when, he, when you go into the land, actually get there, which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities, which you didn't have anything to do with. You didn't build those cities. And verse 11, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself. Got that? Then beware, watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. What is this saying? I believe it is saying, have a humble, tender heart for God's provisions. Have a heart of gratitude. Be a thankful person. It doesn't say move out of the city. It doesn't say move out of your nice home. Get rid of all your nice things. It doesn't say don't eat from the trees and starve a while. You don't need to feel guilty or apologize that we live in a nice community as long as we are not owned by the things that we have. The text just says, watch out. Be careful. Watch yourself. God seems to be saying, don't get derailed here. Remember where you got all of this from. It comes from the hand of God. Verses 10 and 11 is a picture of ancient affluence. Now remember, these are slavery people about to move into model homes, model landscaping, and apparently beautiful gardens and fruit like you've never seen before. You remember how the, uh, the grapes that the spies brought back? These huge bunches. Wow. And here they're moving into that kind of land. Now, we all know that a child does not automatically take his eyes off things. No, he wants things. It's very hard to have a walk with God in the fast lane. Faith stays shallow in the fast lane. So watch out. Be careful. So essential number three is be thankful for what God has given you and be careful of the fast lane. The fourth essential, verses 20, 21, and 22. We need frequent reminders of the faithfulness of God. What's going on in verses 20 and 21, 22, they are rehearsing what God had done. They're remembering the conversion of their lives. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall respond. And you'll tell them what the answer to that question is. You know, it's easy to overlook the mighty works of God and so very few know some of the history of salvation, how God has worked 
what he has done in faraway lands as well as here in the United States. And people can't help but be encouraged by hearing what God has been doing and realize that he hasn't changed. When our children come to us and ask, what does this mean? How come you, mom, dad, believe the Bible the way you do? Well, son, daughter, I'm so glad you asked. Then you tell them. You tell them. Dad, mom, how come you operate the business the way you do? Well, son, daughter, I'm glad you asked. Then you tell them. How come we do things differently than our neighbor? Well, son, daughter, I'm so glad you asked. Why do we take God so seriously in our home? Well, son, daughter, I'm so glad you asked. You see, we were once in bondage. We were slaves. And uh, I want you to know what it was like. It was hard, hard, hard. We had no hope, none. Then God rescued us, you know. You tell them, tell them. We need to tell our children what it was like before we came to Christ and what difference that has made in us. If we don't tell them, then they will have a book of theory. Good theory, yeah. But they need living, authentic, real stuff. The stuff of our life. They need to know what it was that made a difference so that now we are no longer in slavery and we no longer serve Pharaoh, but we serve the living God. In order to survive, we need to get the principles from this book and let them permeate our life. An authentic home will give authentic answers to the questions that are asked. It will give admissions when mistakes are made. And I would not be authentic if I only paraded my perfectness, or perfectness, I guess is a better way to say it, before my children. Because they know they're not perfect. And Dad, you're telling me you're perfect? Oh. So when I make mistakes, I need to apologize and ask for forgiveness where it is important. An authentic house will give authentic answers to the questions asked. We need to remember these survival reasons. And, you know, we just barely touched Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I commend that book to you, and then that chapter, particularly chapter 6, to all of you. We need to have a love that permeates us as parents. We need to pass on the baton of truth in, on a, in an authentic way. 
We need to be thankful for what God has given us and be especially watchful of the fast lane. And remember and rehearse before the family the difference God has made in our lives. May the Lord bless you all as we seek to live before our kids and even before our neighbor's kids. One little last story and I'll close. Our neighbor came to our house one day and said, uh, you know, I wish you would tell your daughter to stop talking about the blood of Christ. I didn't know that she had said anything like that. But this made such an impression upon these Jewish neighbors of ours that they began having a Bible study, a study in their home. I'm not sure it was a Bible study. And uh, they invited us over for the first one. And so we went over. And uh, they didn't bring up my little small four or five or six, I forget what age she was, daughter. But they were bringing up issues like uh, belief in the God of the Bible. Some didn't believe. Others believed. And they had a little bit of an argument over it all. But God was speaking through that little child of mine, that little girl. Uh, and God can use us, use our families. It wasn't uh, thinking necessarily that she would be a missionary to uh, our neighbors, but that's somewhat what happened. So may the Lord bless us and help us. May, may he bless you all in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to come to you and to present ourselves. And as we were singing earlier, have thine own way, Lord. Have your own way. You are the potter. We are just the clay, available to be molded. So, Father, thank you for this portion of your word, the survival portion of your word. And we pray, Father, that you would bless this company of your people, the families represented here, the fathers and the mothers and the grandparents. Lord, would you help and bless. Thank you for bringing us together once more to worship you, to think of you, to hear your word. Thank you, Lord. You're such a gracious God, and we thank you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.